Hebrews chapter 3. Let's pray. Father, give us instruction. Lord, give us understanding of your word and application in our own lives. Lord, that our hearts would not be hardened. Lord, that we be not taken away with the deceitfulness of sin. Lord, that we might be found faithful. We'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. The writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish people, a congregation where there's a mixed multitude, just like there was when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. A lot of people had seen the great uh, miracles and the blessing of God on his people, and so they just came along. They said, we, we, we'd like to go too. They weren't believers. Some of them weren't even Hebrews. Some were Egyptians that saw the blessing of God, recognized that some of them were. We understand that Caleb was not Hebrew, but definitely a faithful man of God. And so they came out together. And so in every congregation of every, any size, there's normally a mixed multitude. We don't know hearts, but God does. And in this Hebrew congregation, they're suffering persecution because of their relationship to Christ. Some of them are true believers in Christ. They've received Christ as their Savior. Some are kind of on the fence still. Some are suffering and they're faithful. Some are thinking about going back to the dead works. So the writer of Hebrews is writing and telling them, listen, Christ is the real thing. He's better than angels. And in this chapter, he's going to talk to them about the fact that he's better than Moses. As much as Moses was faithful in all of his house, Christ is greater. He deserves greater glory. He's the creator of all things. The message is entitled, Faithful. Verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. In the very first verse, we see the keys to faithfulness. These are the keys. It says, first of all, holy brethren. It's understanding who you are in Christ. That you belong to Christ. Holy is separated out for his purposes. You're holy. You belong to him. I know some churches that teach that there's only certain people that are saints. The Bible doesn't teach that. Even to the Corinthians, with all their problems and all the sin that was in that church, he said to the saints that are in Christ in Corinth. They're saints. If you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior today, you're saint. You're set apart for God's purposes, not yours. So much discouragement comes into the, into the Christian life, we forget we're not our own. We're not our own. We're bought with a price. Therefore, our priority in life is to find out what? What pleases God, not what pleases me. God did not save you so that you go your own way. Instead, it's a little dis probably distracting, but uh, we have the fellow out there teaching, you can have your best life now. No, only if you're unsaved do you get your best life now. Our best life isn't going to be in heaven. In heaven, not now. There's going to be challenges now. So much better to be on the narrow path, even though sometimes it's the path of difficulty. But it is still the path of blessing and the path of joy. 
But if as a believer you come to Christ and all of a sudden things are going rough and you say, well, this is not what I signed up for, well, what is it you did sign up for? Maybe what you heard was not the gospel. Peter said, don't be surprised when you get suffering. Don't be surprised by that. There's a battle going on. And Satan can't get you back if you belong to Christ, but he sure wants to keep you of non-effect. He wants to keep you neutralized with jo- without joy and defeated in your Christian life. So if you're going to be found faithful, first of all, it's recognizing who you are in Christ. You're holy, you're part of a congregation, and you've been separated out for God's purposes. Then he says, partakers of a heavenly calling. Kind of the same thing in a different way. If you've been saved, you've been saved because God called you on purpose. The Bible says that in Romans chapter 8. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he will also glorify. God saved you on purpose. It wasn't just a generic message that you responded to. We've already looked in the first two chapters at the ministry of angels. And angels, in many cases, kept you alive because God knew he was going to save you. The world is filled, the universe is filled with these invisible creatures that God created for his glory, for his service. And it says they're ministers of our salvation, the last verse of chapter 1. To bring us salvation, to keep us alive sometimes. But you were saved on purpose, a holy calling. This last week I was talking to my son David from Germany. We try to talk at least once a week. and know, know what to pray for one another. But he has so many of you that are praying for him over there and, and you get to talk to him with the great technology of Skype and FaceTime and all those things that we have today, free. And so they struggle with some of the things, same things in Germany that we do. How do we as believers live in this world that seems is, is spinning out of control faster and faster and it's upside down morally and People call good evil and they call evil good and they celebrate that which God abhors. It's this attitude of being heavenly minded. He says, keep your eyes on Jesus. Consider, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He has two offices. An apostle is one that is sent with a commission. He was sent to provide the knowledge of the Father and salvation. And he's also, he, so he comes to present the Father to us and communicate God to us. And then as our priest, he provides salvation and he stands as our attorney to plead our case before the Father. Consider Christ. Matthew chapter 12, verse 20. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory, and his name the Gentiles will hope. So when you think about living in this world, about God's purposes, it's not about being political so we can get our agendas and we can have a comfortable life here. It's about the gospel. I'm sure there were many things that 
people would want to, would have wanted Jesus to get involved with politically, like the overthrow of Rome. Make it better for the Jewish people to live. He didn't get distracted by that. There were a lot of terrible inequalities that were going on. He didn't get distracted by that. He came to do the Father's will. He came to provide salvation, and he didn't get distracted, just like you and I are not to be distracted. Think about this a minute. You consider Christ. What if you could just get rid of drug addiction and all those problems so that, you know, those, those were not big legal problems anymore, and people still died and went to hell? If you could fix people so that morally you were comfortable with them, but they still died and went to hell, what would be gained? Our gospel is the center of our battle. We're here to speak the truth in love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul lists off some, some sins and he says, these people are all on their way to hell. He lists off some sins. It includes homosexuality, drunkenness, thieving, lying, all those. Just a bunch of sins right there. And then he says, and such were some of you. But now you're washed. Now you're clean. God doesn't look at people and say, well, here's the big sins. And these you can live with. I think sometimes as Christians, we don't allow the Holy Spirit to work in our life because we've got the sins that we can live with. But other people's sins, those are bad. We, you know, those need to go away. Jesus wasn't distracted. He came to do the Father's will. We're here to love people no matter what their sin condition is. Not to condemn them. Not to disassociate from sinners. Because how can we be salt and light if we're not there to love them? If you believe in the power of the gospel, it's the gospel, not you. Not politics that can change people. The gospel. Every one of us were lost in our sin. We may have different uh, sin inclinations, but we are all lost in our sin before Jesus came. And none of us saved ourselves. But Paul said in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to anyone that will believe. That's our calling. Our heavenly calling is to be about the Father's business. That's our calling. Not to be distracted by making a better America or make America last longer. We can look back and say, well, probably a lot of the reason America is in the state as is because Christians weren't being salt and light. We were being, what, comfortable and we learn to get along and, and just to go along and be nice rather than being salt and light. And so here we are. But here we are. And if you read the end of the book, it is spinning out of control but not out of God's control. And one day he's going to come back. He's going to rule and reign on this earth. When it's all said and done, Peter told us that one day this earth is going to pass away. Whether you like this news or not, we're living on a disposable planet. We're to be caretakers of it. We're to do a good job with it. But it's going to go away one day. And all that's going to remain is that which is eternal. And Peter wrote, and he said, Now seeing that all these things are going to be dissolved, 
What manner of men ought you therefore to be? In other words, what are your priorities now? You have a heavenly calling. God saved you on purpose. He has set you apart for his purposes, and he has gifted you for those purposes. A heavenly calling. How are we faithful? By keeping our eyes on Jesus. Willing, as it says in 2 Timothy 2.3, to suffer hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who has enlisted him as a soldier. So the challenge is finding out what has God called us to individually. The only way you can find that out is spend time with the Lord. By keeping your eyes on Jesus. John MacArthur said this, keep considering Jesus. You don't need anything else. He is sufficient for everything. Now that you have the supreme reality, keep your attention on him. The reason so many Christians are weak and worried is they do not keep considering Christ. And so his full strength and comfort and guidance are not theirs. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, learn from me. He did not say learn about me, but learn from me. Here's a question. Do you really enjoy your Christian life? Do you get up in the morning and say, Lord, I just can't wait to see what you're going to do today? When we're faced with spiritual problems, serious problems, insurmountable problems, the really worthwhile prescription is remember Jesus Christ. Gaze on him. Remember him. Fix your eyes on Christ. That's where the answer is. We get so involved in the problem of looking for problems, we forget about the simple answer is just go back to Christ. These people were distracted because of the persecution, their own sin, the own hardness of their heart. They thought, well, let me just quit then. I'm just going to go back to what I used to know. It was easier then. And you know what? In some respects, that's true. It's easy for a dead fish to float downstream. And if you can do that, go for it. Because I know what the Bible says about believers. He's put his life into you. So the righteous man falls down seven times, but he keeps getting back up. Why? Because that's Christ's life in you. You can't quit. If you can quit, you didn't belong to him. You may get discouraged. You might fall down. You might get really discouraged. But your life is hidden in Christ. You belong to him. You can't stay there. Now, we need to understand why the Israelites were so taken with Moses and why it was so important for the writer of Hebrews to say, listen, Moses was faithful. He was. He was faithful. But Christ is greater than Moses because Moses was a man who was a faithful, faithful servant. For 40 years, he grew up in the house of Pharaoh. He was a man known by his deeds, probably military. He learned all the language and the science and the arts of the Egyptians. God allowed him to do that, and then God sent him into the wilderness. And for 40 years, he was separated from his people, from his language, and from the language of the Egyptians. And then when God said it was time, in God's time, not Moses, Moses thought maybe he was powerful enough he could deliver the uh, children of Israel politically by himself, being a great leader that he was. God took 40 years for God to humble Moses 
And then he called him. And through miracles and through Moses' faithful servant's heart, God delivered his people. He used Moses in all the plagues and people saw. He used Moses to not only get, get the children of Israel free from Egypt, but also they plundered Egypt. God gave Abraham a promise 400 years before that he was going to make Abraham's family a great nation. His one son, Isaac, would be a great nation. And he, probably told, he told Abraham, I'm going to, they're going to be a people that are going to be in bondage for 400 years, but I'm going to deliver them and make them wealthy. Now get this. They were the slaves. They lived kind of separate from the Egyptians because the Egyptians were separate. Remember Joseph's story how when his brothers came, they thought he was Egyptian, so he ate separated from his brothers because the Egyptians were just better than everybody else. But God worked in the Egyptians' heart. They were so glad to get rid of the children of God that when they asked, the, Moses told them, based upon that Old Testament prophecy, you go ask your neighbors, all those people, those Egyptians that you know, to give you gold and silver and, and provision for the journey. And the Bible says they plundered Egypt. We know God still does that today. That's what we call this land that this church building sits on. We call it borrowing from the Egyptians. We bought this land for $70,000, and that was a big deal when we bought it. We didn't have any money. All we had was college students. You know college students don't have any money. $70,000. And we moved out. We just knew this is where God wanted us to be. And, and the people we bought it from were gracious. They gave us five years to pay it off. We paid it off in about two that was before Walmart was here and all this other stuff, and it went from $70,000 to over 2 or $3 million in value. Where'd that come from? Well, you guys were just smart. No, 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 no. We just did what God told us to do because it's not about putting it in the bank either, is it? When God gives you wealth, it's for the kingdom. It's to use so that others would come to know Christ as their Savior. So the children of Israel went out and they plundered Egypt. They said, yeah, yeah, just get out of here. They were probably afraid if they didn't, something else might happen. And then Moses led them out, and Pharaoh, his heart getting harder and harder, said, hey, I'm not going to let, that, that's all our workforce just left. What are we going to do now? So he sent his army out to get them back, and all night long, God was a wall between his people and the Egyptian army. And the people were afraid, and they said, oh, Moses, you let us out here. To, that was the theme of their 40 years. You just let us out here to kill us. And Moses said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And as the priests stepped into the waters of the Red Sea, God parted the Red Sea. And they went over on dry ground. Now, we hear often, and I'm, good, I'm glad you get it in your brain too, Dr. Bookman has taught us that sin makes you stupid, right? Probably not original with him, but he put it into that phrase, sin makes you stupid. So here comes the Egyptians. They say, well, if they can go across, we can go across. And God wiped out the Egyptian army. They get to the other side. Once their provisions were done, God fed them heavenly food. He gave them manna every morning they could gather, and he gave them some instruction. Because he wanted his people to obey his word. Learn to do what God said. Simple, not easy. Because we think we're smarter than God. We think we can bless ourselves better than God's instruction. 
He said, what I want you to do is every day, just for that day, you go out and gather manna for that day. Just that day. If you keep it longer, it's going to be worms. Sufficient for the day. Until it comes to Friday. Now, on Friday when you go out, you gather for Friday and Saturday. Why? Because Saturday was a Sabbath. They weren't supposed to gather. There wasn't going to be any. If you went out to gather, it wasn't going to be there. God was teaching, you trust me for these basic things. And God provided for them for 40 years in the wilderness, supernaturally. And what did they do? They would complain. They got out there a little further, and they ran out of water. And they blamed Moses, and they said, Moses, you brought us out here to kill us. God told Moses, strike the rock over there. The rock brought forth water enough to take care of those millions of Jewish people that were out there in the wilderness. Time after time after time, miraculous provision, miraculous pr protection. And yet their heart just got hard, just like your heart and my heart can get when we don't trust the Lord. So in, in verse 1, we see the key to faithfulness is knowing who you are and what you've been called to do. And the way you're successful is you keep your eyes on Jesus by staying in the word and by staying in prayer. So God can direct your heart by his peace, Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of God rule and reign in your heart. You know what that's like, don't you, not to have peace about something? You've got this great opportunity and you say, ah, I don't know. If you're married, you have a good wife or a husband that says, let's pray about it. I don't know. I don't have peace about it. But it's a surefire deal. Doesn't matter. God directs by his peace. You say, well, that's, that's not exactly uh, black and white. Yeah, it may not be black and white, but that's exactly what God said, by his peace. And by wise counsel. We have that also, don't we? I'm not talking about going to people that always agree with you, but going to godly counsel and saying, listen, here's what I'm praying about. You say, well, I'm going to have to get transparent then. I'm not going to share my business with somebody else. Well, fine. Well, then you miss out on wise counsel. But when you get over yourself, right, and you learn to be humble. You can go to your brothers and sisters and say, wow, I really got this struggle. I don't know what to do. Would you pray with me? You know what you're doing? You're including all those people in the blessing of God. They can be involved in what's God doing and be encouraged. God is still alive. He's still sitting on the throne. And he still gives direction. And by his opportunity, by your desires, Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will what? Give you the desires of your heart. You see, if you're delighting yourself in the Lord, his desires are going to be the same as your desires because he's leading you. And he gives you a desire for ministry or for opportunity in business or school or a wife or a husband, right? He leads you. For the believer, we can truly say, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, he leadeth me. He leadeth me to lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside the still waters. Even if I walk through the valley shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because the Lord is with me. He leads us. And then we have in verses 2 through 6 the examples of faithfulness. Moses was not doing the miracles by himself, was he? And that's what the writer's pointing out. That was God doing that. Paul writes, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that rock that led us, that gave us water, that was our shadow in the wilderness, that was Christ. That was Christ. 
So if you're going to go back to Moses and stay there, you're missing what Moses was pointing to. Because Moses would follow Christ. Our Savior Jesus, verse 2, was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by so much more as the builder of the house is more honored than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is, is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. Moses points to Christ. Remember when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain in Matthew? Dr. Book was explaining to us, and last time he was here, that the disciples weren't getting it. They weren't believing. And so as he prayed to the Father, he said, Lord, Father, we have to do something. They're not getting it. So he takes the three up to the mountain. And they see him transfigured. Who's he talking to? Moses and Elijah. Elijah. What were they talking about? Talk about the coming crucifixion and resurrection. Moses was in on that by that time. Moses was faithful. But Christ is worthy of more glory because he's the creator of all things. He's God. And by going back to the dead rituals, they're, they're talking about leaving the personal relationship, the reality, and going back to dead works. Often I hear that sometimes from Christians. They kind of miss the dead stuff they came from, the rituals. Oh, it's so beautiful. No, it's not. You have the opportunity as a believer to have personal relationship, personal counsel, to learn from Christ, not just learn about him. In verses 6 through the end of the chapter, what we see is the enemies of faithfulness, hardness of heart, and the deceitfulness of sin. The hardness of heart is when we don't trust God's word. We don't trust God. Oh, we believe him, but that's for the past. You can look at the scripture. These people could look at Moses and all the things that happened before and say, well, that was before. I'm living here and now, so, you know, God just doesn't work that way anymore. I've got to live on this life, so let me have just a really, you know, balanced view of things. And they don't take God in consideration, and our hearts gets hard. And the second half talks about the deceitfulness of sin. You don't think you need the word. It's not that important. And then you depreciate how wicked sin is. You say, well, it's not that bad. And it destroys faithfulness. Verse 7, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and, I, and, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they will always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways. I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Now, there are three kinds of rest pictured in the book of Hebrews. The first rest is the Sabbath rest, and that's the rest of our salvation, that you can rest in Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. He finished the work of, the, of salvation on the cross. You can rest in that. You don't have to work it out anymore. He fulfilled the law for you. You can rest in your salvation. 
Secondly, the rest he's talking about here is not the rest of salvation, but the rest of our inheritance. You see, they came all the way through the wilderness, God doing miracle after miracle, protecting them, providing for them supernaturally, but they came to his promised possession, Palestine. Oh, God can't do that. They came to Canaan, and they sent the spies in. Spies went in there. Caleb and Joshua came back carrying those, you know, one cluster of grapes on a pole between two men. And they said, fellas, you got to see this. I mean, it's exactly what God promised and more. You cannot imagine. See, that's with the blessing of God, more than you can ask or think. And they said, this, this place is flowing with milk and honey. Just like God said, all we got to do, it's ours. And after... They'd seen God defeat the whole Egyptian army. And anybody that came against them, they said, oh, God can't do this. That's in the past. I mean, we went in, there's Nephilim in there, man. There's giants in there. Oh, we're like grasshoppers. There is no way we can do that. And they brought back an evil report. Why? Because their heart was hard. God had said one thing, but they said, no, no, no. We, we, no. Mm-mm. No. That's, no. God can't do that. We're on our own. See, that was before. This is now. Now, what did Paul say? Romans chapter 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But he said, but not, not only this. We glory in our tribulation because tribulation works patience. Patience experience and experience hope. And hope makes not a shame because the love of God is spread abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit that is given unto us. What is he saying? He said, listen. We can glory in those tribulations because after you've been through one, you can say, hey, we've been here before. Wow, let's see what God's going to do. Let's see what God might do. What a joy to be surrounded on the elder board with men like that because even this building is an illustration of how God provides and we couldn't see how he was going to do it. We'd sold this five acres just south that you could drive across to, to come into the parking lot. And it was enough money to pay for all the building. And we said, wow, God is good. Look what he did. We couldn't imagine that. It's done. It's, and so we had a contract. We took, took that contract to a uh, financial institution. They said, well, sure, that's, that's a done deal. We'll give you the money for that. So we borrowed the money, ordered all this material. And the material got here. It was sitting, waiting for them to put it up. And we're waiting and waiting. And then guess what? That sale went away. It was gone. I'm so thankful for our godly men. And Rich Tremaine, who of all people, you know farmers are warriors, right? He's a farmer. They should be the most worried. In fact, you know, it's a character trait for farmers. Well, you know, it's raining now, but it might flood. And if it doesn't flood, it might not rain again, right? But Rich is a godly man, and he said, well, guys, this is kind of exciting. I thought, oh, it is? It is? Tell us, Rich. And Rich said, listen, we've seen how God could provide a one time. Now we're going to see how God can provide a month at a time. And he's been doing it ever since. God is good. He will provide today for the challenges that he brings today. But you get hardness of heart. You say, I've got to figure this out myself. Then you're going to be right where they are. And they came to enter in and they couldn't enter in. As a God, first of all, took care of the ten wicked spies. He said, okay, you guys are dead, and they dropped dead. 
And then the people said, oh, oh, okay, God, okay, we'll go in. God said, no, no, that was your opportunity. That was it. You know, sometimes in life that happens to us. God gives you an opportunity. You know it's God, and you say, but God, I don't know if you can do that. I think right now in Germany, we have an opportunity like that. There's going to be almost a million Syrians because of what's going on in the Mideast coming to Germany. Germany's opened their doors. And people say, it's going to change the face of Germany. I'm talking to my son David. He's so dad. It's going to change the face of Germany, but God is doing this. And we have an opportunity. Now, when you see a great opportunity, when you see that now there's an opportunity for these people to hear the gospel and freedom that they've not had in their own country, well, you say, that, that looks like a white harvest. Uh-huh. And what did God say to do? He said, pray that God would send forth laborers. So will you pray with me? I don't know how God's going to do it, but will you pray that God would raise up laborers even from here to go to Germany? Get jobs in Germany. And be a part of what God might do in reaching people that have not had the same opportunity before. See, opportunities come along and, and they had an opportunity to go in and they refused because the hardest of their heart. God said, nope, you're not going in now. I'm going to teach you a few things. So 40 years they had to wander in the wilderness. Now, there were two fellas that were faithful that brought back the good report, Caleb and Joshua. And God was going to let them in. Now, Caleb and Joshua could have been real bitter and said, hey, Lord, why don't you just ditch these people? Let us go in there. We'll take them. But they didn't. Caleb could have said, well, 40 years? I'll be 80. What can I do at 80? And he could have had a bad attitude, but he didn't. He submitted himself to God. And for 40 years, they watched all their friends drop over dead. Everybody that came out of Egypt that had seen all the works of God dropped dead in the wilderness. And I love what happens when they cross over into Canaan. They cross over. And Caleb goes to Joshua and says, hey, hey, Joshua, remember? Remember we were there spying out the land? Remember I put, I put my dibs on that mountain? That's my mountain. I want that mountain. Eighty years old. And I wonder if Joshua said, you know, well, Caleb, you know, hey, you're not a spring chicken anymore. Where? Caleb said, Joshua, you give me permission. I'm just as strong at 80 as I was at 40. That's quite a statement. You think he was just, you know, exaggerating? No, God is able. I think God kept him just as strong as 80 as was at 40 because Caleb was willing to trust God. And go along with even those rebellious people. And he took that mountain. Some are not able to enter in because even as a believer, their hearts are hard. They think they're on their own. They rest in the book Benjamin Franklin 1.1. God helps those that help themselves. That's not in the Bible. Listen, if you're going to follow Christ to the world, it's going to seem like risk. To other hard-hearted believers, it's going to seem like risk. But when God's calling you, what an adventure. What an adventure. God said, 
Because of hardness of heart, true believers don't get to enter into all the blessings and the joy and the fruitfulness of seeing other lives affected and other people come to know Christ because of their hardness. Again, David is going through some challenges over there. and He said, you know, we've got a small group of people in our church that are just kind of hard-hearted and they just... And you know, I, the attendance the, the of the church has doubled. Our membership has doubled. We're seeing people come to Christ. And yet these people just get more and more bitter. And I said, David, Pharisees are not impressed when things are growing and God is blessing. That's threatening to them. You see, what Pharisees, what legalists are looking for is comfort and control. And if God is blessing and the church is growing, they look at they're losing their control. That doesn't bless them. So don't look at them. You keep looking at Jesus. Because it's risky to follow Christ. It is. You know, it wasn't just rest. Sometimes we sing songs about Canaan's land. We sing it here. You know, I, I stand on the shores, look foolishly over into Canaan. Well, that's not heaven. It's not death. Because they had to go over, they had to take possession of Canaan, didn't they? They had to fight some battles. And God was going to teach them to trust him through every single challenge they had, just like he does in your life. Every challenge. Entering into his rest is entering into the place of fruitfulness and blessing in the Christian life. Trusting God day by day. The other challenge to fruitfulness is the deceitfulness of sin and an unbelieving heart. Verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be any of you, one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. There were people here that they're kind of going along. They're a part of the congregation, but God knows their heart. They haven't trusted him. They're not real believers. God knows their heart. It says, verse 13, but encourage one another day by day as long as it is still called today. What does that mean? It's talking about the strength of accountability of Christian brothers and sisters and the opportunity that you have to be faithful today. You can't be faithful yesterday. You can't be faithful tomorrow. You can just be faithful today. But we need one another. I know you hear people say, oh, I don't need church. Then you don't have the Lord. Or you're in the gall of bitterness. Because we need one another. We need one another. We need that encouragement that comes from finding out that God's working in their life too. We need to come together and bear one another's burdens. We need to come together and bring accountability into one, or, one another's lives, let we, lest we depreciate sin and we let it in and it destroys a whole family. We've seen it happen here. Sin came in, has come in and destroyed whole families. And what do we have to do? We have to be there and confront sin. So well, hold, hold it now. The Bible says don't judge. I don't do this off, but I want you to turn with me to a passage of scriptures so you can see it with your eyes. Now, we know the Bible teaches very clearly we're not to be passing condemnation. That's like when somebody tells somebody else to go to hell. Like somehow we have the power to condemn somebody else to hell. 
passing judgment on people like, okay, that guy's a drunk. He's never going to turn around. We don't know that. That's, that's passing judgment on people. But appraising situations, yes, we're called to that. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Paul's writing because in the church of Corinth, they got a lot of problems. One of the problems is immorality. And they thought they were so spiritual, they could just let immorality go unchecked because, you know, they didn't want to judge. So Paul writes to them, and he says about this fella who's in an immoral situation, he says, you put that fella out. You deal with that. Then he gives them instruction. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with the covetous, swindlers, idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. We're called to be salt and light in the world. So you're going to rub elbows with Christians or, or non-Christians. You're going to have a relationship with unbelievers and, and, and know them and, and try to bring Christ's love to them, encourage them to follow Christ. He says, but I actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. Here's a fellow that, oh, I'm a Christian, and yet it says he's an immoral person or covetous, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler? Now, that's quite a list, isn't it? That's not a limit of the list, but really covetous? What does that mean? You see a brother or sister, and all they think about is getting more and more money. You're supposed to confront them. Hmm. Somebody who's a cheater in his business, a swindler. Somebody who is worshiping something other than God, but they call themselves a believer. Now look at the next verse. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those within the church? We're not called to be casting judgment on the world, but we're to be appraising one another's lives. And that's why we're so big on small groups. Right? We're not going to do it in this big congregation because I don't know all of you, and all of you don't know me that well. You say, well, I don't know if I can trust that guy. That's okay. But when you get in a small group and you build relationships and the center of that is the worship of God and praying together and bearing one of those burdens, you get into one of those lives and you find people that you know, they got your back. And when trouble comes, they're the ones that are there. In our church, when somebody goes to the hospital, guess who's first there? Their small group. You say, well, I don't have a small group. Well, you better get one. That's where ministry takes place. And that's also where confrontation takes place with the people that you know love you, that care about you enough to ask those hard questions. The Bible says in Proverbs 16, the wise man teaches his mouth persuasive words. Why? Because we're not trying to put people out. We're trying to restore people. But sin comes in and it's destructive and it's damaging and it's deadly. And if we just say, oh, it's not that big a deal, we're part of the problem. We let it go on and we say to ourselves, ooh, I think that's going to leave a mark. But you don't love your brother enough to go and confront him in his sin? Hmm. We'll say, that, that's hard work. I don't think they're going to like it. <laughs> I don't like it either. Personally, pers this is my personal deal. I just kind of wish God would deal with everything like he did Ananias and Sapphira. Right? If he could just deal with all the discipline, it'd be a lot easier on us, wouldn't it? But you know what? We'd miss out. We miss out on the joy of watching God restore our brother or sister and watching them grow. Oh, it'd be easier. And for that reason, a lot of churches don't even go there. But it's part of loving one another. 
And he says here in Hebrews, it ought to be a daily thing. In, our, in our, one of our small groups, we've kind of developed a thing. I didn't come up with it, but that's pretty good. Flash fellowship, you know. Because our guys are busy. You, you may say, well, I'm too busy to be involved. No, you're just too busy then. You know, you're an idolater. You don't have time for fellowship, then you need to rearrange your priorities. That's what you need to do. Um, in our group, there's no excuse with anybody because John Bragg goes days without sleeping, delivering babies. And so when somebody says, I'm too tired to come, I'm like, no, you're not. Mm -mm. You've been up four days? No, but I'm really, no, you're not too tired not to come. When you can meet up with John and, and, and stay up with him all the time, and he's always there, then you can say, now that's, I love having a standard like that. Because the problem is people don't know how much they need it. You may be physically tired, but if you go without fellowship, you're going to be weak and open to Satan's darts and snares, and you won't even know it. And pretty soon, you'll be allowing sin in your life like it's no big deal, and Satan is just snickering just before he brings you down and destroys not only you, but people around you. He said, no, no, day by day, encourage one of the day, as long as it's still today, while you have opportunity, so that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You just let it go on in your life. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. What is he saying? If you hold on, you get saved? No, no, he's saying, if you're saved, you'll hold on. Yeah, because... The Bible says there's enough trouble that comes in life and the winds of life come through. And you know what? It blows the chaff away. John wrote in his epistle and he said, they went out from us because they're not part of us. If they were part of us, no doubt they would have stayed with us, but they went out because they weren't part of us. Trials separate. It causes your roofs to go deeper or it blows you away. And he says, we need to be involved in one another's lives so we don't let Satan harden our life and become unfruitful. Then he says, who does this include? Oh, this is just a minority of people they can affect. No, it says, for who provoked him when they heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? You may take that little deal, you know, where you, like a junior high kid, you, you poll people to see how bad things are so you can get to them and say, well, yeah, I have that sin too. It's not that bad. The whole congregation got hardened. The whole congregation saw all those miracles, saw God's teaching. They got wisdom directly from God through Moses. And they all had to drop dead and they didn't enter into God's inheritance for them because they got hard and they just allowed sin like it wasn't a big deal. The whole congregation. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with all those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient? So we see then they were not able to enter in because of unbelief. Unbelief in what? Unbelief in that they needed to really be obedient and attentive to God's word. And unbelief that God's word said sin was dangerous and it will kill you and that wasn't a big deal to them. Hardness of heart. Unbelief. The word, the word exposes our hearts. And then if we trust God, the word enables our hearts to obey God and to claim his promises. Oh, brothers, we need the word. Sisters, we need the word. And we need the fellowship of one another, bringing confrontation, bringing comfort, bringing strength. 
Father, I thank you for your word. Oh, that we would be found faithful. Stir us up for an appetite of your word. An appetite for more fellowship. An appetite to be in that kind of close relationship with brothers and sisters that we can be that strength and encouragement and confrontation. Lord, that we can become all that you have chosen and gifted us for. Lord, that this congregation doesn't get set aside, but that this congregation can hear, well done. Lord, because you've told us in Peter's epistle that you've given us everything we need for life and for godliness. God, make it a priority in our life that we would hear from you. That it become the motivation to hear, well done. Because, Father, we're your servants. And there is no more important work than the work that you have for us. And we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.